The turtle shell masks produced by Torres Strait Islanders in the 19th century are intriguing and dynamic. But they've also been kept apart from the masks' descendants for decades. It's a fascinating and heartbreaking history, and the subject of Leah Louis Chavez's work. Following the release of her book, called Masked Histories, Turtle Shell Masks and Torres Strait Islander People, I spoke to Leah about how the masks themselves drew her to this story. But first, I got her to describe them and the way that they blend art and cultural practice. The masks that were collected from the eastern Torres Strait are faces, are human faces, whereas the masks that were collected from the western Torres Strait are much bigger three-dimensional masks of predominantly of animals, so animals feature and there's human faces attached as well. And in that way, so the, so people talk about eastern masks and western masks, and really that's based on where they were taken from. To, well, I, guess, I suppose to a degree, um, but there's yeah, but there are kind of many stories about their making, or there are some really major important stories, one or two really important stories about their making, um, in the in the West, in the Western Torres Strait. Do you want to tell me that story? Big story. So, the story connects uh, the Torres Strait to Papua New Guinea, and speaks of the movement of one person from the coastal New Guinea into the Torres Strait who then showed people initially in the central islands, showed people dances and then taught people how to make the masks that went with the dances. And then at some point the knowledge and the masks themselves are distributed across the Torres Strait. Yeah. So, and this stories, these stories go back to a time of, of well, an unknown time, you know, a time that can't be really be determined. But I think one of the prime markers for the existence of these masks in terms of Western knowledge is when Torres and de Prado go through the region in 1606 and they see a mask and a pile of turtle shell on Zege, which is one of the central islands in the Torres Strait. You go into it in in your book, Masked Histories, but this results in many masks being collected and put in museums around the world, somewhat divorced from their, their cultural significance what impact did that have? Gosh, I guess a couple of really big things. So predominantly the removal of most of them happened after Christianity is introduced. So there is something that sits in there about the absence of those masks impacted on the practices associated with those masks on particular islands and given, you know, one of the, you know, the, the key aim of missionaries, of course, was to convert islanders to Christianity and show them a newer and supposedly better way of living in and understanding the world, both in kind of living time, but also in the time of after death. And the masks, of course, speak to both these. 
So you can you could talk about this, I suppose, this battle between Western Christian knowledge and Islander knowledge about the meaning of an afterlife and how our spirits move from one realm to another, which is one of the things that is associated with the performances in those masks in the Torres Strait, pre-missionaries. So that's a great question, Rudy, and, and that's just one of the one of the main impacts of their removal, like especially post the arrival of Christians. What drew you to this area of research? I like to think it's the masks themselves that drew me. My sense of them is that they, although they sit silently in storerooms and museums around the world, they are waiting to be engaged with. So that is one of the things that kind of has informed my engagement with them. And I think very early on, I met with Uncle Dimple Barney from um, Mabiog Island, um, amazing linguist and cultural knowledge holder. Um, Bless his soul, he's passed on now. And he gave my interest space. And he gave me, I guess, the confidence to, to do this work despite the challenges that might come up. And he pretty well was my advisor throughout, you know, the, especially in the very early stages and then towards the very end as well. Um, there's probably other, probably other things and part of it is I think that perhaps I waited for them to let me know that I could work with them. Yeah, but, you know. I know it's such a, it's such a hard thing to kind of trace back to look at some, something that you're so passionate about and so connected to, like where that actually stems and kind of pinpointing. So I'll add something here because... Um, so I guess there were moments when... And there have been many moments when these... Some of the masks have been on exhibition and I've seen them in different places around the world, in Sydney, in Melbourne, in Brisbane. Um, but I guess the, the real, I mean, the, I guess the, the stronger thing is I was asked um, to write a description of one, of, the, of one turtle shell mask, which is at the University of Sydney. Um, so doing that sometime in the, I don't know, mid-2000s, um, took me back to them in a whole other way. Um, and I th- and I think so if it were one thing that that kind of pushed me um, from being kind of enchanted and in awe of their presence and power into engaging with them to produce something else, it's probably the act of writing a description of of this mask which was taken from um, Erub or Darling Island in the eastern Torres Strait in 1875. Reading masked histories and hearing you speak, it's really evident that that the masks have have a life of their own and have a presence. You write about them in terms of like having met them, for instance. Um, what what is it? It is about the masks that evokes that. I think it's because they were performed in, which gives them a different life, which. And um, 
So, you know, the stories that I retell and, and others that I've looked at talk about how the masks are placed on the wearer, that someone is chosen. And, and even in that, the story of someone is chosen, um, there is a, the story that I was retold um, when I was on Murray Island was about how the mask, how a mask chose who would wear it by being lighter for the person to put on for the person who was wearing it, whereas others who tried it on, it was just too heavy for them, yeah? So that, to me, says that there is this, like uh, I was saying earlier, that they, they wait to be animated. Leah, how has artist Alec Tapoti influenced your work? The work of Alec Tapoti and Alec himself have been really important for me in this project or in this book, in the work that I did for this book, because of the way I, he's engaged with the material and the spiritual world in his work. And when I first started thinking and writing, he was working on a version of the mask that is on the cover. So he was working on his own version of that mask in Cairns at the time. He was living in Cairns at the time. So I went to visit him and I saw it there and I was just... And I, it was like I knew straight away this is going to be just amazing. And it was like... And um, I think the year before I had seen that mask in the British Museum. So seeing his um, kind of unfinished um, piece that was the shape of a shovel nose ray already... Um, it, it, for me, like finding that and talking with Alex seemed like the perfect fit. Like it was the perfect, it was the perfect beginning for telling stories that brought um, the past into the present. And in a way, it's not denies the past, but gave the past a new life perhaps, yeah in the present. Mm. And, yeah, and Alex's work, of course, has been amazing and he, there is a, uh, I think it's in the National Gallery, maybe it's the National Museum um, in Canberra, um, a kind of rusted steel version of one of the masks as well, sitting on a podium. Um, So, yes, so his engagement... Uh, and I, his engagement has been really, and the engagement of other artists, I have to say, with the masks has been has, has really inspired me as well. And I kind of, I kind of tend to think of this book as a, um, as joining the work that's already been done, yeah, by artists like Alec Tapoti. It's it's interesting because um, I guess I've been thinking about and talking, um, talking to different people about the way that different objects, traditional objects, when they are living in museum spaces, in art gallery spaces, how they're kind of serving this dual purpose of being um, of being a marker of culture, of continuing our, our cultures and our knowledges, but also museums are a contentious space for Blackfellas and I and I think it's yep. uh, that's not a yep. that's not a new idea. Yep, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. But there's an interesting way that 
that people like yourself, that artists like Alec are engaging or re-engaging with these institutional spaces to animate mm. objects. Yep. Mm. Yes. And, and particularly when, uh, when I see masks in museums and particularly when they are on exhibition, because I think seeing them in storage and seeing them in, a, in an exhibition are very different experiences. Um, but when I, and I, especially when I see them in exhibitions, it kind of, it raises for me both um, the sadness and the violence of these places, yeah, the sadness for the objects and the people they've been separated from and the violence of these institutions. Yeah. And I wonder, like for people who know absolutely nothing about the Torres Strait, where it is, who the people are, whether they've still survived, whether they've got their culture or not, I wonder what the people who look at them think about and what they make of these, these objects that are just so beautiful. Who've been your main influences? There are a lot of people who made this work possible. I've mentioned Alec Tapoti, Uncle Dimple Barney, but people from um, Central Islands in the Torres Strait, from, from Yam Island in particular, um, my aunts and uh, great-aunts and uncles and cousins, and then on Murray Island, which was amazing because the mask that I write about from Murray Island um, uh, has just been so important for for so many things for Murray Islanders, you know, including the native title decision of 1992. Yeah. So, and it's what the mask represents um, for Murray Islanders, but also for people across the Torres Strait, which is, which I think is, um, it's it's wonderful to write about. And in saying that, knowing that. What I have written, of course, is not the definitive work on these masks. They have so many stories and, you know, my, my hope is that there are others who will want to um, take up some of the stories that they know and tell the stories about these masks because, I, you know, there is... I talk in detail about maybe six or seven there's over a hundred masks, you know. So there are many, many stories to be told, and I think that you know, for me, um, and I, I write about it in the book, is that the, it's what researching and writing this book has confirmed for me is that the stories and the masks hold history and culture. And so when if people, you know, I. I get a little tired of people talking to me about, you know, many islanders have lost their culture. It's like, no, <laughs> no, no, they haven't. It's, it is there. It's, the culture is not lost. You may be talking about the way people are engaging with that culture is different. You know, cultures adapt. Cultures change. Yeah. That's how this works. That's how the world works. Leah Louis-Chavez there. Leah's book, Mast Histories, is available now and goes into more detail about these incredible turtle shell masks. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.